Hi, I'm Elena Becker, and this is P.S., the Puget Sound podcast, where we'll be talking with members of our campus community about their Puget Sound experiences. Today, we're recording from Moonyard Studio in Tacoma, Washington, and our guest is Andrew Gardner, a cultural anthropologist and professor of sociology and anthropology who studies transnational labor migration to the Arab Gulf states. And full disclosure, he was also my advisor in college, so Andrew and I go way back. Andrew, good morning. Good morning, Elena. Thanks for coming to chat with me. Well, my pleasure. I'm super happy to be here. Hey, I think the first thing I want to start with is a question I got asked a lot when I first decided to become a sociology and anthropology major. Oh, no. I know. I don't know if we've ever talked about this before. Oh, but there are so, some of these questions can be very hard for anthropologists. Well, I, mm, this might be hard for you, but bring you it might on. like it's an opportunity. All right, bring it on. I got asked all the time, what is anthropology and why do you like it so much? Well, yeah, that is one of those questions that's broad enough to actually pose difficulty for some of us who've been anthropologists for the majority of our lives. Sure. I think, um, you know, when you think about what anthropos is, the Greek traces its roots to the Greek word for mankind. Sure. And logos, knowledge of or study of. So it's really, broadly speaking, the study of man and mankind. Anthropology is divided up into four subdisciplines. So there's culture and cultural anthropology, linguistic anthropology, physical or genetic anthropology, and then archaeology. Um, and all of those sort of combine. It is the study of humankind, which is really broad. Um, but also, you know, that latitude is also very exciting for many of us in anthropology. And how does where does our department here fit in on that scale? Yeah, that's a good question. So at uh, the um, undergraduate level, most departments of anthropology in the United States don't comprehensively cover all four of those fields it's that I described. Much. It's too much. Yeah. And uh, they may cover two of them at best and typically only one. And mm. so social and cultural anthropology is both what we do and is really the most common at this level. Maybe with a second, um, maybe archaeology would be the, the second. But typically in what we do, I think to answer your question, is we specialize in social or cultural anthropology. And that's also your specialty. It is. Will you give just a little bit of an introduction to the type of work that you do? Oh, goodness. Yeah. Um, the type of work that I'm known for, I mean, could I tell, you know, anthropologists are known for telling stories. So maybe mm -hmm. I'll tell this in story format. I would instead. love it in story right. form. Um in 1998, one of my professors cool. in graduate school came to me and said, uh, Andrew, <laughs> I need you to go to Saudi Arabia with me next month. And I'm like, you know, heck yeah, right. I'm all in, you right. know, bring, bring it on. I, I, want, I want to do these kinds of things. Yeah. And so, you know, going to Saudi Arabia, I thought I would meet lots of um, Saudi Arabians, right? right? Sure. But uh, Arabs. But um, was really blown away and surprised by how um, the foreign workforce was so prevalent there, even in the Bedouin encampments that we were studying, mm. that were a focus of our study. 
the day-to-day operations were being run by Syrians, Sudanese, Afghanis, Pakistanis, all these other people working there. And so I returned to the United States after that uh, two-month trip and uh, uh, proposed, you know, wrote a a proposal to go back and do dissertation research about the relationship between the foreign um, uh, working population and the citizen residents of uh, one of the Gulf states. And ended up going back to Bahrain uh, in 2002 and 2003 and was focusing my energies on the Indian community or the Indian Mm. diaspora, as we call them in scholarly worlds. Um, And as a course of trying to get to know the many different pieces and parts of this Indian community in Bahrain, I ended up spending a lot of time in the labor camps where the lowest sort of echelon, what I call the transnational proletariat, where they dwell, sleep, reside, work. And ends up, Elena, that, you know, um, I guess sort of unbeknownst to me at the time, I was the first... Western academic researcher into that particular nook of the world. And so that portion of my dissertation work, which eventually became my book, City garnered of a lot. City of Strangers. Available yes. where? <laughs> Available at all good bookstores or Amazon. Perhaps. Sure. <laughs> um, uh, but that portion of my book really garnered the most attention. And um, uh, when I returned to the, the Middle East uh, in 2008 for another short stint over there, I really focused m- more intensely on transnational labor migration to the Arabian Gulf states. So in a sense, my I cut my teeth in, 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 in the area studying outsiders' experiences in Arabian mm-hmm. society and looking through the eyes of these outsiders at how they see and experience both the world and the, the states in, in which they work and the peoples for whom they work. And I imagine that as an outsider yourself, there's sort of an interesting multi-layered perspective there. For sure. And, you know, I think in anthropology, we always sort of value this kind of diving right. in, this immersive part. Can we, can we somehow participate in the, in the life worlds of the people that we're studying? And fascinatingly, as you're sort of indicating, yeah, our class and our positionalities oftentimes are dramatically different, especially when I'm looking at these mostly men who are at the bottom of these labor hierarchies. Right. But at the same time, we're both foreigners in an authoritarian context, could be deported at you know the whim or whimsy of whomever uh, we might cross paths with. And so there is sort of some, some parallels uh, um, and anxieties that I think are shared, you know, all, all foreigners share when they're in that part of the world. Sure. And I, I wonder if maybe the way that most of our listeners would be most familiar, maybe most recently familiar with these conversations is through the controversy that surrounded Qatar's participation in the World Cup. Yes. Uh, and, you know, uh, that I think has really become the sort of lightning rod of attention for the region. Right. And, you know, it also is, uh, I think, really can help you understand the sort of strange trajectory of my academic interest in yeah. this. Because, 
for the first, what was it, 2002 to 2009, 8, 10 maybe? So the first six years of my academic career were really devoted to garnering attention and saying, uh, hey, world, um, this is the third largest flow of migrants in, in the uh, right. transnational migrants in the world. And nobody's paying attention to the kinds of frictions, problems, and exploitations that we see in this particular theater of contemporary migration. Right. And then 2008 comes along and these kinds of the bid for the World Cup is successful. And then there's the bid for the Olympics. And suddenly the Emirates and Qatar and, and Kuwait are more on the map of people's global awareness. Right. But that coincided with, you know, a lot of journalists wanted to write these stories that were basically publicly shaming the Arab states for the treatment of labor and trying to cajole them into better policies as mm -hmm. a result. And I found that that recurring sort of theme in the article, like journalist after journalist was calling me with the same story and really regurgitating these kinds of ideas and tropes about the manipulative, sneering sort of Arab, uh, uh, you know, Gulf Arab that I really found problematic considering right. how well I knew, you know, all the people I know yeah. in that part of the world and deeply respect um, and so in that second chapter of my career, I found myself sort of backpedaling away for, yes, now that people are paying attention to these issues, I want them to understand the nuances and complexities of the world that I study. And I think certainly, you know, going in looking for the bad guy that we can pin blame on doesn't explain the very systemic and global sort of properties of the migration system that I study. And this is maybe an interesting avenue, too, to think about the specific disciplinary contributions of anthropology. And I'm, I'm wondering about what it is that you think made your viewpoint as an anthropologist so different from the lens that these journalists had taken to this issue. Is that just a question of longitude? Is it a question of method? Is it a question of really theoretical and academic training that that's different that's a no that's a really interesting question elena and something that i think about quite a bit yeah. and and so i would say a couple things that recur in my mind when i'm trying to answer that question to myself is first of all yes i mean you know we use the, this ethnographic method that requires immersion and sustained contact with the people that we are writing about and so unlike many journalists who can, you know, cherry pick a few anecdotes from taxi drivers that they're chat with on their way, you know, from the airport to the hotel, right. it's like I have this, you know, sustained time in the labor camps getting to know the diversity of experiences and stories. And so I think that ethnographic tether is, is one of the differences. But I think another one that I would point to, and, and you know, with my early work, I was looking at... Bahrain and the Indian community's experience in the Bahraini state, I was looking at it through the eyes of my Indian informants, right? right. The people I studied. And I was aware that I, I, even at that time, that I wasn't giving enough space 
to thinking about this situation through the Bahraini sort of hmm. lens. Sure. But when I went back to Qatar in 2008 and started teaching at Qatar University for a few years and got to know many, many Qataris who are close friends with me to this day, I think, and, and the young women that I taught in class, in my classes, really helped me sort of also think about this combination of elements that we see in Arabia through the Arab citizens' eyes as well. And so it's balancing those different sort of viewpoints on this single sort of juncture, right? And trying, I think that anthropology compels us to do that, mm -hmm. to think about this. So yeah, I can understand it from a, an exploited Nepali laborers right. sort of view. But I also want to understand this world through a privileged, you know, third generation South Indian migrant. Right. And I want to understand it through, you know, the, the middle class Qatari, Qatari citizen. And I want to understand it from, you know, the cousin in the royal family's sort of vantage right. point as well. And to think about all of that together, I think, is really the challenge that, that anthropology calls forth. And this is such an interesting point because one of the disciplinary shifts that I think we've all seen happen in the semi-recent past with anthropology is that ethnographic methods, the sort of investigative hallmark of anthropological research, uh, has started to get popular. And in a lot of ways, that's great, right? It's I think it's powerful and important that people doing all kinds of research go talk to the people that are living those conditions. But it also, in some ways, dilutes one of the hallmarks of anthropology, that you go and you are there and you have this experience. So to hear you say that what you think is is in some ways part of the disciplinary integrity is that you don't just apply that lens to one particular angle, but that you take those holistic methods and apply them holistically across a spectrum of perspectives and ideas is is, is interesting. Yeah, and and I, I appreciate you you stating that, and you know, it's I think it's really only over the past five or six years um, that I've really sort of reframed my own understanding of anthropology and ethnography mm. around this 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 ethnographic impulse to cross these thresholds of difference, mm. right? And I think that's one of while well, you're right. I mean, a lot of people are are taking ethnography aboard as their method of choice, and I think there uh, it's a mixed bag. I think there are some people who are true to this what now century old methodology. Sure. But I think other people, you know, just simply use it as a way that they can hang out and write what they <laughs> think with us under the auspices of some kind of social science it gives maybe they're culling some particular credence uh, from from that association. But I also think that one of the amazing things about ethnography and one of the places I see its value increasing actually is that it's a tradition for how do we cross thresholds of difference and understand empathically from the insider's perspective ways of living in this world that are different from our own right and that's been the the tradition of anthropology and it seems to me when i look around um, especially the united states today there's no more valuable sort of attribute than i can think of in this 
than this capacity to engage and try to understand difference. And I say this, you know, amidst a period that what I see in, in America today is is people sort of pulling back into to their, their shells and their groups and, uh, you know, really uh, um, um, turning away from that... Uh, attempt to understand people's who people whose opinions are different than one's own. But I I suggest that even the fact that that example rings so uh, so clearly is an interesting development in the discipline because historically there's this concept in anthropology that you go away, you mm-hmm. study the other, you go elsewhere, and often that that's outward looking, but outward looking in terms of nation states. And I wonder if it's an interesting fringe outcome of globalization and this neoliberalism, really, that now when we think about what it means to study the other, the example that you just pulled up and that made a lot of sense to me is sort of self-segregated groups within a nation state and not necessarily a nation state one to the other. Well, yeah, uh, and I definitely agree with that point. But, you know, anthropology has continued to adjust and accommodate the social realities of the world for uh, more than a century now. And I think part of the story of globalization um, is that, you know, rather than having to travel to the distant fringes of the world to find Mm -hmm. and encounter that difference, I mean, nowadays, different peoples are moving to the same place. And so what, you know, a hundred years ago, anthropologists would have had to go to 19 different sort of distant locations around the world to get the same experience in some ways that I'm getting going to a single labor camp and walking down the hall and talking to men from Sri Lanka. And then I'm working with the Bengali men. And then I'm talking to the Keralites from South India. And then I'm suddenly North Indians. And then there's the Nepalis. And then there's the Pakistanis. And then there's the Egyptians. And that's all in this one sort of building. So I think that also, you know, is part of of what's... um, some of the changes that anthropology's gone through is part of it. One of the other things that I want to talk about is I'm hearing you speak so um, thoughtfully about the discipline and really the contemporary moment in the discipline. You are, in a lot of ways, an extremely leading researcher in this particular area of study. As you mentioned, you're one of kind of the only people looking at it. You've done really important work in the past. You've worked with Amnesty International around these issues. You continue to publish. I think when you look at a, a CV like that and somebody who keeps up on the discipline, in a lot of ways, that sounds like somebody who is is a researcher, and yet you still teach a full class load every semester. Hmm. You're still very present. You still work very actively with your students. And I want to get to talking about what that work looks like. But one of the things I have personally really appreciated, but also appreciate objectively is how committed you are to teaching amongst all that work. Yeah. And I mean, you know, we could uh, have a whole podcast just about this topic in and of itself. But in short, I mean, I recognize and, you know, before I took my took the job at at Puget Sound, I I knew that I wanted a a teaching intensive undergraduate environment, even though with my sort of research interests and my 
track record even at that time, my, my, my um, advisors were saying you should be looking at a research one sort of context, right. which is much less teaching and mostly teaching graduate students. But to me, the, the dialogue with undergraduates and the discourse, the way of talking that we foster in the classroom is very similar to my penchant for public anthropology, which is mm. this move in anthropology not to speak to others in the ivory tower, but to carry our understandings and our our writing to a broader public audience. Think of the way that geographers reached a broad audience with National Geographic, sure. or, you know, something we all know. That right. same impulse to get out of the ivory tower and to speak more broadly. And so I tell my students know this. I talk to them and the, uh, about this very fact in that the conversations that we have in class together shape the way that I think and write and present my ideas Oh, you know, whether I'm at a conference or writing in paper. And in fact, just this week, I uh, dumped three uh, unfinished drafts of papers that I've been <laughs> working on over the last year on my students, seeking their comment, like, right. what's not clear to you? What could I explain better? Because they are my ideal audience. And I and I I mean, yeah, as you uh, you know, I, I do love teaching. And but what I think is really telling about that anecdote is not only do you love teaching, but that you have the caliber of student where you can give them a draft of your own academic work and say, what do you think? And get back meaningful feedback. Oh, for sure. But I mean, that's really a testament to Puget Sound, which really attracts just the kind of student that I was at that age. You know, mm -hmm. not maybe the straight A strongest student, you know, not quite the valedictorian, but one of the very, very strong students with a diversity of interests. <laughs> uh, and, you know, that was the – I feel like that I get a lot of students that remind me of myself uh, when I was uh, their age, albeit, you know, students these days come in much, much more knowledgeable and equipped mm -hmm. than, than we did um, – so long ago. Back in the day. <laughs> well, it's interesting that you should say diversity of interests, too, though, because one of the themes that has come up a lot, even in really just the short time that we've been doing this podcast, is the idea of Puget Sound as an and school. And I think that's true for everybody. So with students, it often manifests as I'm a sociology and anthropology major and a French minor and a global development emphasis and I'm in the honors program and I lead backpacking trips and I write, et cetera, that you get this really... A complicated human being that does a lot of things that maybe don't line up necessarily. But I think that that's true of faculty also, that you get people that are just engaged in the Puget Sound community in a lot of different ways, whether that's through teaching, whether that's through research, whether that's through fostering experiential learning for their students. Yeah, I, I can see that. But I mean... You know, when it comes to getting involved in the Puget Sound community, I mean, you know, being as stressed for time as I am, uh, trying essentially, you know, having a, a very intensive research position and also teaching so much, I have to say that, you know, my emphasis is on my research and with students in the classroom. And mm -hmm. there is a, a constellation of other activities that my colleagues are very involved in sure. that I am less involved in. And I depend on my colleagues to, you know, be focused and energetic about their committee work on X, right. Y, or Z in order for me to have the liberty that I have to really emphasize teaching and research. And so... 
you know, we are a, an institution and a faculty that that has to, you know, be collegial and collaborate on the, on these kinds of issues in order for a diversity of faculty mm. to coexist. But I think also, I mean, even within those categories where you just said teaching and research, the way that you live out teaching is enormously varied. And so I'll just rattle off some of the things that Mm. I can think of that you do, and then you tell me what I missed. But so you, in service of getting students to sort of practice ethnography and get out in the world and have experiences, I know that you've taken your students mushroom hunting. Mm -hmm. (laughs) In the past, you have had students come down to your... uh, your pretty unique neighborhood. It's a, an intentional <laughs> community here in Tacoma and right. talk to your neighbors, interview your neighbors. Uh, you've taken students to um, a local gun show, right? Oh, to have that we experience. Go, we of... go perennially, we go to the gun show. Yep. You probably don't remember. I used to take my students dumpster diving as I well. I didn't know that. Yes, we've done some dumpster diving. You've just returned from taking students to Cutter for a week from a big international trip. So, I mean, even within that category, I guess I want to be clear that when you say teaching, you don't just mean classroom teaching or lecturing. You mean teaching in a big leaned in way. For sure. And and I have I just love that kind of um, field trip focused right. uh, 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 um way of going learning and i think at number one i think it really channels the ethnographic spirit Mm. of going out and exploring the world as it is out there um and number two i mean you know with the push on campus around experiential learning i often end up sort of telling my students you know ethnography is really the century-long home of experiential learning our concept of participant observation of diving into these foreign social worlds and trying to participate and understand them from the inside out i think is you know quintessentially you know uh, experiential learning so as far as yes i did just return from the middle east i took 17 students with dr robin jacobson we took them um to Qatar, uh, Doha, and it was Capital an City. amazing trip, an amazing trip, and I just can't wait to do it again. As I um, uh, have, was recently writing a brief essay about this, very interesting for an anthropologist <laughs> to, to have a group in the field. Yeah, I mean, we, we are such solitary creature. You know, we are, as Michael Agar said, the professional stranger, right? right. And we're used to doing this kind of field work alone, where we find our way into some community, tribe, whatever, far away. But to bring a group of students into a place that, you know, I've been looking at on my own for, what, two decades now, was so energizing, Elena. I mean, to be able to see and experience all of this through fresh eyes and to get their feedback, I... I, uh, I just loved the experience, and I also want to say that I think a lot of that had to do with the amazing batch of students that I, I lucked into uh, for this class because to, to, to the T, all 17 of them were just spectacular ambassadors for our campus, for America, and, and great human beings, and I'm I'm super excited about them as well as our trip. Yeah. 
Andrew, we are wrapping up all of our conversations <laughs> Okay. Uh, with four quick questions. I'm asking everybody the same four questions. Uh, well, I'm going to have to go go quickly through these then. Well, you can, if you want to take your time, mm-hmm. you know, you're, right. you're in charge. Um, what's the best place on campus, do you think? So the, I was thinking about this last night because I did uh, catch wind of these questions in advance. And to me, well, the best place on campus is that patch of woods between the president's house and the library. The Prez Woods? I love those woods because the... Uh, you know, the mycology of those woods is interesting. Different <laughs> mushrooms come up at different times right. of the year. But unbeknownst to you young uns, there used to be this giant picnic table back there. I did not know that. It was that. hewn from like old growth <laughs> logs. And you could sit a class of 20 students around this single picnic table. Right. But then in the windstorm of, what was it, 06 or 07, a dug fir fell on it and crushed the table. And uh, it has yet uh, will probably never be rebuilt. So, but I'm going to choose the patch of woods nonetheless. That's that's my favorite spot. What are you reading right now? Oh, I am reading. Oh, you have it with you. I do. That's I am professorial. Preoccupied with this book by Eric Kleinenberg, Palaces for the People: How Social Infrastructure Can Help Fight Inequality, Polarization, and the Decline of Civic Life. So one thing we didn't get to in this presentation was that my interests have grown and expanded from transnational migration to the cities and the urban landscape right. in which those migrants live. And this this whole area of of the city and the urban landscape. I love it. And this book really connects the spaces we build with our sociality and our interactions in ways that I I think are really productive. And that's what he means by this term social infrastructure. What is that that infrastructure that we're we're building and maintaining to keep us um, a social uh, be, social beings. Oh, yeah. I have a lot of questions about that, but we're we're on <laughs> yeah, a timeline. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So instead, I will ask you what your favorite place to eat in Tacoma you know, is. I was puzzling over this question as well, and I think anybody who's been in Tacoma knows we've got tons and tons of lovely new options here, and and I love that about Tacoma. But I'm just going to settle on the 12th Street taco truck. That's my <laughs> that's my happy place. Yeah, I'll take three tacos. Uh, what do you get um, in your tacos? Uh, so I like the birria, the, okay. so the stewed meat tacos. It's my favorite. Yeah. And lastly, Andrew, to close, what makes Puget Sound special? Well, I was also trying to puzzle over how I would answer this. And I thought that maybe one of the most interesting ways I could just briefly close with is is a little bit of a fact about Puget Sound, the university, that I think um, students maybe don't have a full awareness of. And that's actually our equal pay scale. Unlike most universities, at this university, uh, you know, a fourth-year assistant professor in chemistry gets paid as the fourth-year assistant professor in anthropology, Mm. the same as the fourth-year assistant professor in biology. In my experience and talking to my colleagues in other parts of the U.S., many faculty are fighting at other universities, and they may have ideological issues up front, but those (laughs) fights are often about financial uh, resources resources underneath. And I love the egalitarian pay scale. I think it inculcates a kind of 
egalitarian spirit in the faculty that mm. that pervades our campus and our campus experience. There are some notable exceptions around campus to that general sort of equality, but in general, I think that's a very noteworthy and often unremarked upon aspect mm. of the university that I would I definitely am super supportive of uh, and, um, and, and, and appreciate. Andrew Gardner, thanks for joining us. It's been my pleasure, Elena. Thank you so much. Hi, I'm Tori Hansen. Assistant Director of Admission at Puget Sound, working with students in the Mid-Atlantic and in the San Francisco Bay Area, as well as all of our transfer students. If you like what you hear on this podcast, you can learn even more about Puget Sound by coming to campus. Schedule your visit at pugetsound.edu visit. We'd love to host you. Thank you to our guest and to you, the listener. You can follow Puget Sound on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at UNIV, U-N-I-V, Puget Sound. And we hope you'll join us next time for another episode of P.S., the Puget Sound Podcast. <laughs>